The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. How should we treat time in our lives? What should time mean to us? And can psychedelic experiences allow us to reconfigure our sense of time? On today's episode, we're joined remotely by philosopher of the mind and metaphysician Dr. Peter Schurstedage, who breaks down our relationship to time through the lens of psychedelic experiences. Time refers to duration. That is experienced change. Um, everything you see around you is constantly changing. Even if you move your head, that's change. And even if you don't, if you see, see complete blackness, there's still change in terms of the accumulation of memory. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Peter Schurstead H. I'm going to be concerned really with two main questions. Um, the first one is, why would time not be real uh, vis-a-vis timelessness? And secondly, is timelessness experiential? Can one experience um, being outside of time? And to that, I'll give two affirmative answers, or well, two and a half almost. Um, firstly, I'll say yes via uh, the philosopher Spinoza's concept of amor de intellectualis, or the intellectual love of God. Um, I'll say yes by the classic mystics accounts. And also at the end, um, I'll talk about the experience of a one of the most potent of all psychedelic drugs, um, 5-MeO-DMT. Let us begin then. Why would time not be real? Um, two aspects of this. The question is, what is, what is time anyway? And um, what is the eternal? Um, that which is outside of time. So we start with this. What is what is time? There are many aspects of this, and um, it's obviously a huge question that no one's um, really answered fully. But um, I'll go through a few aspects of time and suggest um, why we might uh, hold the unreality of it. So first of all, um, time refers to duration. That is experienced change. Um, everything you see around you is constantly changing. Even if you move your head, that's change. And even if you don't, if you see, see complete blackness, there's still change in terms of the accumulation of memory. So you can't avoid duration in in one. Well, 
in prosaic consciousness and everyday consciousness. Duration is part of um, lived experience. So that's the most common um, notion of time. Of course, time itself in that sense then, when I say time, it's an abstraction from duration. So um, the, re the real thing we experience is the change, you know, the perception of the change of, of things of, of, um, and of our mind. And from that whole um, experience, we sort of extract um, the abstraction that is time. And then often, you know, in physics, especially we put time on a timeline, um, an abstracted spatial representation of time. So you can compare these two, first of all, these two basic elements of time. First, there's then lived experience duration, and then there's the abstract timeline, like with, uh, which is divided into T1, T2, and so on and so forth, which is used in physics and so on, mathematics and whatnot. Secondly, we must distinguish when we talk about time, uh, the triplicity that is past, present, and future. Uh, this is the essence of time, according to Jeremy McTaggart, who was a British um, idealist at Cambridge. Um, he wrote this great text in 1908, published it in 1908, called The Unreality of Time, where he argues that um, the past, present, and future, um, which is the essence of time, is merely subjective. It can't really be properties of events themselves because they couldn't have all those three attributes at once, which he's, you know, much more complicated way than I'm explaining it, but which he then leads him on to say that, you know, um, in absolute reality, mind-independent reality, we can't have past, present, and future. Um, this is also, of course, the view of the classic idealists, especially Kant, who says time is merely a projection of our mind and doesn't exist in, in the world out there in itself, the world in itself, the noumena, the thing in itself. Um, so anyway, so we can distinguish in time this triplicity, past, present, and future. Um, and I should just emphasize this fact that you, in, in physics, in science, there is no such thing as the present moment as compared to the past and the future. The present moment is determined by the mind itself. So you take away the mind, and you've taken away that fundamental aspect of time itself. Um, what are you left with? Well, you can still talk about the order of events, C-series, as McTaggart calls it, um, which are not subjective, but objective. So, you know, first A happens, and B, then C, then D, then E, and so on and so forth. Um, this seems to be objective, um, although it comes into, even that comes into question when you consider relativity. Um, so there's the first, I'll just, just summarize so far, there's the first um, pair of duration versus timeline. There's a second um, aspect, which is triplicity as against the order of events. Another aspect of time, very important, is what William James called the specious present. And that means the, the, dura the, the length the duration of the present moment. And um, again, this is, you can't say that this is an objective fact, a mind independent fact rather, of the universe. Um, the specious present, the length of the present moment, the now, is very much determined um, again by our minds and it can extend and it can contract. Um, Related to that is what Henri Bergson calls the rhythm of duration or the speed of time. Um, 
And uh, even this is uh, very subjective, which means that um, speed of change can, speed of time rather, can change according to one's predicament, human's predicament, but also according to species. So um, there is evidence that different species perceive time um, faster or slower than we do. For example, a fly um, might perceive our um, whacking of it um, in slow motion, unfortunately. Um, also, I remember, like for example, my, my brother told me of this very peculiar incident uh, only some months ago where he was riding his bike uh, very fast and suddenly a toddler ran onto the road in front of him and he held his brakes, uh, his back brake, but it wasn't slowing down enough. So he held the, uh, the, the front brake and then he tipped over. Luckily, <laughs> flew over the child and, well, heard himself landing, but luckily an arc that avoided the child. But anyway, the interesting aspect of that was, this is a known phenomenon, um, everything to, for him suddenly became, suddenly slowed down. He was sort of moving very slowly and he could perceive the child, the parents in disarray and, um, and so on. Um, and so for him then, the rhythm of duration, the speed of time, was suddenly slowed down. And again, this was, this is a subjective aspect of his mind due to the danger of his predicament. So again, we can say that this uh, rhythm is, is subjective, not mind independent. Fourthly, we can consider time as the fourth spatial dimension vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, Minkowski and Einstein. Minkowski was Einstein's mathematics teacher. Um, and um, <clears throat> I mean, there was, before, before then, before, you know, 1905, when the theory, first theory of relativity came out, there were, um, there were good mathematical theories as to why there were more than three spatial dimensions, um, stemming really from Riemann, who proved that um, you can have a geometry based on uh, multiple dimensions of space, not just the three that we presuppose. I mean, Aristotle said that, you know, um, Physicality is three-dimensional. That's just it. There cannot possibly be more without contradiction. Um, but uh, this seemed to be, at least theoretically, mathematically not right. So Riemann proved that you can get very coherent um, geometries then based on four dimensions, five um, ad infinitum. But it was Minkowski, really, who suggested that time was a spatial dimension, uh, which is hard to fathom. Um, it wasn't, I mean, Minkowski sort of um, formulated it mathematically, but this idea was already prevalent before him. I mean, even in um, The Time Machine, the novel, you can see this idea uh, from 1895, I think it was, H.G. Wells. But anyway, um, Minkowski-Einstein then, uh, heralding the theory of relativity, said that time is a fourth spatial dimension. Uh, this was, you know, this is still controversial, of course. I mean, spatial dimensions are unidirectional. You can go left and right, up and down, forward and backwards, of course, but you can't go backwards in time, it seems. It, time seems to be a one-way dimension. Um, but, and Bergson, there was an interesting discussion with the French philosopher Henry Bergson, Einstein, in relation to this. Um, but nonetheless, the has been proved that um, 
one's velocity in space affects the speed of time. So the faster you go, the slower time goes relative to other times. And also, interestingly, then with gravity, the closer you are to a gravitational point, uh, the faster time goes as well. Um, now, interestingly, Einstein, interesting to what I'm going to say later, Einstein was an avowed Spinozist, a follower of um, the, the philosopher Benedict de Spinoza. He wrote, Einstein wrote in 1929, I believe in Spinoza's God, who reveals himself in the harmony of all that exists. Um, so I'll talk about Spinoza's God in, in a moment, but this is not the traditional notion of God at all. In fact, many people accuse Spinoza of being an atheist. Um, I'll come back to this. Um, anyway, so we have then another aspect of time as a fourth dimensional space, uh, uh, as the fourth spatial dimension. Um, linked to that, we have Uspensky, the Russian sort of philosopher, philosopher, um, who wrote that time could be multi-dimensional, just as we have, um, well, at least three dimensions of space. Um, there could be multiple dimensions of time as well. I'm not going to get into that, but it's very interesting, although highly speculative. Um, I should say as well that, you know, modern uh, theories of physics, um, string theories, they uh, propose that there are actually 11 dimensions of space, including time as a dimension. Um, but other physicists disagree with that completely, saying there are only three spatial dimensions. Um, but I'm not going to get into that. But anyway, the, um, the notion is not anti-science. I should point that out. So we have then uh, time then as fourth spatial dimension as possibly multi-dimensional. One can consider it that way at least. And um, as I said, time is as relative to gravity and speed. So those are just uh, a f you can say much more about time than that. But I've only got half an hour, and I, I see I'm I'm I'm, I'm, I'm slow already. <laughs> so um, yeah, just to summarise then. So we have what is time? Duration as opposed to a timeline. We've got triplicity, past, present, future, as opposed to the order of events. We've got the specious present, the duration of now, as opposed to the, uh, not as opposed to, in complement to the rhythm of duration, the uh, experience speed of time. Um, and then we have uh, time as a fourth spatial dimension, um, time as perhaps uh, multidimensional itself and uh, relative to gravity and speed and theories of relativity. So, <clears throat> if that is time, then if one considers time without subjectivity, without the mind, um, time independent of mind, then in this objective reality, it seems that, all of this is debatable by the way, but it seems that there is no distinction of past, present and future, as I mentioned. This is, um, this is an old um, understanding or dilemma or question, paradox. Um, even Saint Augustine of Hippo, who was um, sort of brought Platonism to Christianity, um, who lived in the uh, fourth and fifth centuries AD. He, he asked this in his book, Confessions. Um, if the future and the past do exist, I want to know where they are. Wherever they are, they are not there as future or past, but as present. He never really answered that. But in this, in this book, Confessions, there's a very, really wonderful um, talk about the paradoxes or the problems of, of time. Um, which of course really um, relates to the problem of existence itself. You know, what do we mean by existence? Uh, do we do we just say that the present exists, or do we um, give an ontological status, an existence to the past and the future? I mean, uh, it seems that 
there seems to be a reality to the past which is different to the reality of uh, the BFG or some fictional character or unicorn or whatever, you know. These are different types of unrealities or, or different types of realities. Um, but if the past does exist, then as Augustine asked, uh, you know, where, where are they? How do they exist? Um, Einstein, in relation to this, in relation to the triplicity of past, present, and future, wrote in uh, 1955, he quote, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. So, yeah, I mean, so the argument then is that, yeah, without subject, without the mind, there is no past, present, and future. Um, also, there is no limited length of the present. The specious present is just a subjective phenomenon, which means that objectively or time and ind mind independently, um, that could stretch uh, to infinity itself both ways. Um, in other words, there is no present and there is no past and there is no future as distinct. It is all one, as it were. Um, likewise, there is no speed of time, no rhythm of duration, because this seems to be very mind-dependent as well. Now, this is not to say that experience time is not real. I mean, this is Bergson's fundamental point. You know, the most real thing that we have, the thing that we know more than anything else is that we have experience, and experience is for the most durational. Um, but at the same time, that we have to accept that that durational aspect of time is mind-dependent on minds. Um, it's not necessarily mind-independent. So it can be concluded that absolute reality is eternal. Um, in other words, timeless, outside of time. Um, I'll just quickly talk about what is meant by the eternal or eternity. Um, well, so it's existence outside of time, timelessness. Um, it's not... Um, everlastingness, as the theologians call it, which means infinite within time, from the past to the future, um, ad infinitum, infinite duration. It's not that. It's, um, as it were, outside of that. It's not infinity in other senses as well. It's not um, sort of actual infinities like Leibniz speaks about with regard to his monads going uh, an infinite um, hierarchy of monads in physicality or, well, for his his ideality, as it were, really. Um, and it's not potential infinites, so like the mathematical distinctions between smaller and larger infinites, if that's not a paradox. Um, it's, no, it's it's actually not related to time at all. It's the eternal, as is traditionally meant, is then um, something connect uh, next to time, as it were. Now, the next question here is, well, if this timelessness has a reality, as a form of existence. Um, is it experiential? And one thing I should have mentioned actually just before is that um, the eternal, yeah, does, does refer to uh, existence outside of time. Um, this means triplicity at once then, immediate actuality, so the past, present, and future at once. Um, it also means, I should have said, um, eternal objects or eternal truths and qualities. So for, this is what Alfred North Whitehead calls eternal objects, um, traditionally known as universals. Um, arguably, universals include uh, qualia, so even the color red, uh, which Whitehead says doesn't come into existence and doesn't go out of existence. It can be instantiated within existence, but its essence itself is eternal outside of um, any, any uh, duration of experience. 
Um, also, mathematical theorems, you know, like the Pythagorean theorem seems to be an eternal truth. It exists whether or not any being has ever discovered it. It seems to be true um, without it ever being actualized. So those are two main um, definitions of the eternal existence outside time, which includes then uh, eternal truths and triplicity, uh, immediate triplicity. Is this timelessness experiential? Can one, as it is, I mean, this in a way, this sounds paradoxical. You know, if we say that um, mind-independent reality is timeless, surely um, every time the mind has experience, it must be then in duration and in time. It can't be timeless. Uh, Kant said this, you know, the condition of experience is time, um, and it's impossible to experience it otherwise. But um, I'm going to, I mean... <laughs> There are many mystics, reports from mystics, who say they have um, experienced, had an experience outside of time. And a lot of psychonauts, people have taken psychedelic experience, who also report this. Um, I'm going to look at, though, Spinoza then, um, and his intellectual love of God, which is seems to be a uh, like a, a very rare and difficult experience of the eternal, of um, existence outside of time. And I've got 10 minutes to do so. Um, okay, so very quickly then, who was Spinoza? He, lived, uh, he was born in 1632, died in uh, 1677. He was a, uh, he was a Sephardim, which means the, uh, the Jewish people who came from the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, Portugal, who were um, sent out by the Catholics there, and they had to sort of practice in fear and in secrecy. And um, anyway, Spinoza's forefathers, they moved to Amsterdam in... Uh, which was much more uh, <clears throat> um, open-minded, liberal, and uh, tolerant of, of different faiths and beliefs, moved there. Um, <clears throat> but he was, unfortunately, in his 20s, he was excommunicated by his Jewish um, community uh, because his views already were very much at odds with the established religion. Um, he was also later... Uh, castigated by the Christians there in Amsterdam. And after he died, he had a very rough legacy. I mean, people, you know, to, to call yourself a Spinozist in Kant's time, you, you could lose your, your position, your, your rent, your uh, pension. You know, it's almost like saying you're a fascist today. I mean, it was, um, it was a dangerous thing. He was, he was called um, by the Irish philosopher, John Tolland, he was called a pantheist. So actually Tolland, um, coined this term pantheism, or pantheist really, and that was in relation to Spinoza, although Tolland said that Moses was also pantheist, strangely. Um, so often um, in the sort of uh, 17th, 18th century, if you called yourself a pantheist, that was akin to being known as a um, Spinozist. Um, over time, that has sort of separated a little bit, so Spinozism is now considered a form of pantheism, not the only one, or panentheism. Um, Spinoza was most famous for writing uh, The Ethics, uh, which I'll focus on, but also um, he wrote the Theologico-Political Treatise, which was very controversial as well, because it said, for example, Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, um, as was commonly believed, and miracles were not re really uh, scriptural. And um, he started what was known as um, the Higher Criticism of the Bible, which became big in Germany in the sort of 19th century, especially. Um, and this was, I mean, this was considered... Um, more inimical to Christianity than Darwinism even, um, which came out, what, in 1859, Darwinian evolution. Um, this questioning of the sort of um, authorship of the Bible. His philosophy is this, and this is what got him into trouble. Um, 
Descartes proposed this um, uh, philosophy of dualism, substance dualism. So the, the fundamental substance in, in reality were, apart from God, were mind and matter or extension of thought. Um, he, but the, quest, the problem with dualism is how they interacted and Descartes never, never really uh, agreeably formulated that. Um, so what Spinoza did is he brought these um, t mind and matter or thought and extension together into one substance. So instead of there being two substances, one substance, which he called God or nature. They were synonymous. Substance, God, nature, all synonymous for him. Um, now, this was perfection itself, and by definition, um, that had to exist. Um, and it had to have, by being perfect, it had to be eternal. Like it could not be of a finite duration. It was infinite. Um, <clears throat> and so this was a monism. It was not material monism or materialism, which is that everything is made of matter. And it wasn't mental monism or idealism um, that everything is fundamentally mind. No, it was that this. God was substance. Um, there were two attributes of substance that humans were aware of, and that was then thought and, exten um, thought and extension or mind and matter. Not quite the same, but more or less the same. Um, but then Spinoza said there were an infinity of other attributes of which humans were not cognizant as well. Um, other modes of reality, which were um, different versions of that same substance. So I should say that thought and mind and matter were both expressions, attributes of that one substance. They were not two separate things. They were just two separate ways of seeing the same thing. Um, they were expressions as it were. Um, now, this is why Einstein, who wrote a poem about Spinoza, wrote the following. In 1930, wrote, Einstein wrote, Spinoza, quote, Spinoza is the greatest of modern philosophers because he is the first philosopher who deals with the soul and the body as one, not as two separate things. Um, this is a very, um, um, I should say, efficient manner of thinking about um, mind and matter. That they, you know, mind doesn't cause matter. You don't have this problem of mental causation. Or matter doesn't, or mind doesn't emerge from matter, um, as you get in most physicalisms today, they're one and the same thing. But that one thing is not matter itself. Like I said, that's just one of an infinity of different attributes. So it's not a physicalism, even though Spinoza has, hasn't, is interpreted as a materialist. I mean, more so in the 18th century, really, but um, still today. But anyway, what this means is that there's no, for, for Spinoza, there's no dualistic soul. There's no separate soul from the body that can endure after bodily death. When the body dies, that soul or mind also dies because they are one and the same thing. However, interestingly, at the end of Ethics, part five, in, um, in, the, in the latter half of that, he writes this. The human mind cannot be absolutely destroyed along with the body, but something of it remains, which is eternal. Proposition 23, part five of the Ethics. Um, what is that? Well, that's achieved, he says, via a third kind of knowledge, which he calls intuitive knowledge or intuition. Though this is very rare. There's the basic, the first um, kind of um, knowledge is just basic senses and opinion. Second form of knowledge, kind of knowledge is um, science or so abstract uh, knowledge of laws of nature and so on. Um, but then there's this third kind of knowledge, which is very rare, rare intuitive knowledge. And the pinnacle of that, the highest form of such intuition is called, he calls, the intellectual love of God. Amor de intellectualis. Um, this is then um, a fundamental understanding of the essence of things, which realizes that that essence is 
God itself, and by God, remember, he means now nature. Um, this is why people have accused him of being an atheist, even though I, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't go that far. Um, this is a becoming one with that eternal, and remember, God nature is eternal. He's not of a finite duration. Um, so this is, um, and this is the ultimate blessedness, he calls it. He also says, and this is very much avoided in many interpretations. There are varying interpretations of this, I should say, very many. I mean, you never really get agreement. But he says, um, one thing that a lot of interpretations miss out is that Spinoza writes that in the scriptures, this um, intellectual love of God is known as glory, which goes uh, Latin gloria, um, which happens in Hebrew to be kavod, which is very interesting. This is sometimes translated in English as the presence of God. Um, and um, it's often in, in the Bible uh, associated with smoke. Now, I'm not going to go there, but, you know, this is, this is for another talk. Um, so... <clears throat> He writes, Spinoza writes, for example, we feel an experience that we are eternal. And then this experience then, he writes, the love of God towards men and the mind, mind's intellectual love towards God are one and the same. So when we become, uh, when we form this higher cognition of, of Godness, we become eternal. Um, we experience the eternal. And this eternal is God himself. So it is but simultaneously, both us experiencing the eternal um, via God or being one with God, and it's God's way of experiencing um, himself via man, mankind. Um, and this is, this is then the complete unitive state. Um, you become you, your body and mind become God. God becomes you. God is eternal, you become eternal. Um, so the human mind becomes eternal for Spinoza, immortal when it steps outside of time to unite with God, nature, substance. As he says, this is a very rare and difficult to attain. Um, Plotinus, it's um, said, um, attained it a few times. Plotinus was a Neoplatonist uh, philosopher who lived in the um, third century AD. Um, he wrote this, quote, For how can we describe as other than oneself that which, when one saw it, seemed to be one with oneself? There is no doubt why in the mysteries we are forbidden to reveal them to the uninitiated. Uh, now this leads on to um, psychedelics, and I realize I'm out of time. I'll just quickly go into it then. So the mysteries, in ancient Greece, um, there were these... Um, mystery festivals, Dionysian festivals. The prime one was were known as the Eleusinian Mysteries in the town of Eleusis, which was 13 miles or so from Athens. And the, 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 the large ceremony there took place annually. Everyone was allowed to um, attend it who could speak Greek and wasn't a murderer. And um, it is speculated that in this potion that initiates took, called the Kaikion, um, there was psychoactive element of some kind. Um, it Like Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD, he thought it was ergot, which is a fungus that grows off uh, wheat, barley. Um, and a barley field was next to the temple, I should say, in Eleusis. But anyway, whatever it was, um, the, uh, the sort of ostensible purpose of the Eleusinian mysteries was to um, get rid of the fear of death. And Spinoza's ethics really is, um, is a kind of metaphysics of... That is both a psychology and a metaphysics. So by understanding that although your mind and matter are one, there is no soul, there is still um, an eternal aspect of existence that can be attained. One can still step outside of time. Now Plotinus, and also the last Neoplatonist, Proclus, I should say, they suggested that this can be attained um, 
through these uh, rituals. And, um, and this moves us on then to psychedelics. And there are experiences, um, many reports, that one with certain psychedelics experiences something akin to this intellectual love of God. One becomes one with everything. Time stops, but yet experience is there. Um, I myself, um, as I mentioned, have had uh, an experience with 5-MeO-DMT, which was um, near inexpressible. Um, it, it bore this extreme, um, you can't even use the word feeling, but this extreme, extreme sense of importance. Um, I was gone in, in earth years, as it were. I was out of it for about 15 minutes. But to me, it was an instantaneous thing. It was not visual except for a whiteout to start with, like hexagonal patterns. But then it was um, different from the other psychedelics because it was um, a complete contraction of all time within one and a complete uh, blocking of normal experience and duration. And um, something that I am exploring at the moment then is this um, association, this link of 5-MeO-DMT, but also other psychedelic experiences, um, this link with that to mystical experiences and also to Spinozist and Whiteheadian metaphysics to see if these things are not mere hallucinations, are not mere products of the mind, but actually are veridical. I mean, we, one final thing I'll say here is this. Um, to say that such an experience is hallucination would be to assume a metaphysics already, a usually uh, a sort of physicalist um, ontology where um, such things are mere, merely emergent properties of brain functions. Um, now, physicalism is itself a metaphysical point of view, which is, I argue, very much opposed to Spinozism. And this is just assumed, this is a kind of default view in the West, due to Descartes, I would argue, mostly, actually, even though he was a dualist, but I think he led, he, he, he led the West to this physicalism. Um, and this has just been taken as default um, by the sort of um, academic profession, mostly the scientific discipline, um, but it needn't be. I mean, there are so many problems with it. I mean, first and foremost, the so-called hard problem of consciousness, the mind-matter mystery, um, which Spinoza, by identifying mind and matter, sort of overcomes in a much more agreeable manner than saying that mind emerges from matter, which is a complete mystery. So... There's an interesting link then between metaphysics, um, timelessness, and psychedelics. And that's just merely an introduction to a lot more to come. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.